I'm Sadia Tariq and you're listening to Thani, the podcast. His philosophy is not to get overwhelmed by the journey before you, but to simply focus on what you can do right now to make a difference. This principle, when applied well, will push you forward in all aspects of your life. Our guest today is Andy Strong, a nutrition and fitness professional. Good afternoon, Andy, and thank you so much for being here on Dhani. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. It's um, it's it's totally uh, my pleasure to connect with you because um, I am most intrigued one to know about your personal journey, fitness journey, um, mm-hmm. to to and then I have a lot of questions to ask. So. Why don't you first begin with how your journey began, which involved a lot of sweat in literal terms and mm. tears and blood and um, effort um, and perhaps uh, a lot of shame, perhaps, and complexities and confusion. Um, and I let you now take the stage, please. Excellent. Well, I think um, that's quite an introduction. And I think for a lot of people... Uh, listening to this podcast who who are on their own health fitness and weight loss journeys that that could sum up so many so many people because those are the raw emotions that you'll find behind any weight loss goal um for myself that particular weight loss journey uh more or less started with my very last uh, very last day at school my very last pe lesson uh, i was heavily overweight at the time and i remember my pe teacher saying to us that uh, this will probably be the last time that a lot of you here will ever exercise. And I remember thinking to myself, do you know what? He's probably right. Um, but the reality was I was very uh, I was very uncomfortable with my weight. I suffered when I was younger with very low self-esteem and confidence. And the kind of the funny thing is, I guess, when you're in that position, um, it doesn't always feel immediately apparent to you because your environment is is normal to you. So. Um, it wasn't until I went to college a, a couple of years uh, or a couple of years later from that that I was in an environment where um, I was kind of bullied a little bit based on my size. Uh, and that kind of made me really look at my weight for the first time, um, kind of objectively, I guess. And although it wasn't a nice environment and a nice way to do it, um, it did make me think about it. And for me, I reflected on uh, not just where I was and how I felt, but also my family's health history, which has always been, uh, unfortunately, particularly quite bad. And so I was kind of prompted into taking some action because I was worried mm-hmm. that I was going to end up uh, suffering from the same types of condition that, that, that many of my family do, uh, diabetes and heart disease and many of the many of the things that lots of people do struggle with. And that was kind of where my journey started. Um, it was very basic kind of just trying to tidy up my diet basic things I didn't really know anything at the time that led me to the to the gym and and, and as the years rolled on um, that led me into the industry but probably a very long way around um, and actually learned a lot personally along the way and so now when I work with people it's not just the professional qualifications that I bring that I, I'm able to impart but actually really understanding where people come from. And I think that that's what resonates most with people. 
Absolutely. Pouring in your personal um, anecdotes and experiences. So when you began your journey, what if mm. you if you go back in time, what were the first three things that you set out to do? Um, for me, I I like to keep things really simple. And at the time, because I, I, I knew nothing, um, I started with the complete basics and I actually just I was probably, I don't know, 17, 18 at the time. And I just I said to my mum, I said, can you show me how to cook? And my mum, by her own admission, she's not she's not a super duper chef. She, she cooks basic food. But I recognised that I needed to learn how to look after myself. And I'll be completely honest, there was a little bit at the back of my mind was actually, you know, I'm getting a bit older. Being able to cook is probably not a bad thing in terms of if, if you want to meet a girlfriend and, and all of those things. <laughs> you know, if I'm completely honest, there was, a, there was a selfish side to that too. But um, learning to cook was one of the first things that I did. And it wasn't learning to cook healthy things. It was just learning to cook basic things like an age and kind of things like that. Um, then from there, it was a case of just modifying my diet. And again, this wasn't by reading anything at the time. This was just actually, what am I eating that I could change? And it was a case of, well, actually, I swapped white bread for brown bread just because I'd read that that was a little bit healthier. Um, I tried to cut out fizzy drinks because I knew um, it was abundantly clear uh, everywhere that that was something that would be healthier tried to drink more water, although I started on flavoured waters because that was a little bit easier to achieve. Um, and then the first way that I accessed exercise was a martial arts class. And it was probably the scariest thing I've ever done because I the reason I wanted to do a martial arts class was because growing up, it was something that my dad had always talked about doing uh, when he was younger and something that he really loved uh, to be part of. And I'd always wanted to have a go. Uh, and so I'd found this class, I'd kind of um, gone along, hadn't, it was just like before emails and things like that. And I just kind of turned up on the night. Um, and so I'd, I was waiting in the reception of this kind of school hall uh, and I was just about to leave because the room was full of people. My class hadn't started and I was, I was really nervous. And, and then somebody else walked in and they could see that I was new and they come and have a chat with me. And that was it. I couldn't get out of it then. And so uh, an hour later, I'd done my first first karate class. Absolutely loved it. Um, and it was scary. And I kind of you can probably hear it in my voice. That thought of that now still makes me feel kind of um, a little bit emotional um, because it's a very kind of prominent, prominent feeling. But that for me was kind of the three three steps that kind of got me moving forward. Um, and that kind of is what then led on to the more progressive things that you might expect to do in your own diets if you were thinking about that now. But everybody starts with a step. Sure. sure. So out of the two thing, out of the three things, the two were diet related, mm -hmm. kitchen related, mm -hmm. and food related in terms of what we're ingesting. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to the next question: that you are also a sports nutritionist. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, I am. So what is the fundamental difference between a regular nutritionist and a sports nutritionist? Oh, that's a fantastic question. <laughs> um, so as part of my as part of my journey um, kind of led me from martial arts to, the, to, to being in the more traditional gym environment, I got kind of very frustrated as I'd kind of lost most of my weight because I was going to the gym all the time and I was kind of felt like a hamster on a wheel and I was doing all this effort. I'd lost this weight. I got really paranoid. I was going to put it back on, which is really quite common. 
and I needed a way to become self self sustaining in my efforts. And I made a friend who'd done London Triathlon, and I kind of mentally thought to myself, I think I could do this thing. And so I decided I would enter. And as part of that, I then thought, well, actually, I need to stop going to just the gym because I've entered this crazy race. Um, for those that maybe don't know, triathlon is a, a combination of swimming, cycling and running all done consecutively. And I kind of, well, I don't really know how to do this thing. So I did a bit of Googling, found out that there was a club on my doorstep. And that kind of then led me into the world of endurance sports um, very slowly and very gradually. Um, and that's actually where I... Uh, now apply a lot of my sports performance uh, kind of nutrition coaching and the main difference between the two is that they overlap incredibly and we always want to start uh, in terms of regular nutrition we always want to start with a health first approach so there's no point in taking somebody who might be running a marathon or doing their first 10k and going into the depths of supplements and sports performance if their basic diet is not really giving them what they need uh, because they'll actually get more performance out of tidying up uh, their regular diet. In terms of performance for sport, whether it is endurance sports like a triathlon or a marathon, or you're looking for sporting performance in the gym, maybe building muscle or something like that, um, the diet becomes so important because we're taking we're taking everything to the next level in terms of uh, the reason that you're fueling yourself actually switches. So we're looking what what foods will digest the best way what foods will give you the best muscle growth or what foods will give you the best uh, recovery rate so if you are doing a long run what do you need to eat afterwards to make sure that you are well fueled to perform to a high level in your next session but also to allow your muscles to recover so that you're not too sore Um, Mm. in terms of a regular diet Mm. we are looking to make sure you've got uh, adequate intake of nutrients We're looking to make sure that you've got a balance of foods that makes you feel good and that fits around your lifestyle and your routine and making sure that you can still fit in the treats and things that you enjoy that are part of real life uh, and not living in a in a in a diet regime that kind of restricts everything that ultimately means at some point you're more likely to uh, overcorrect and go back to a more extreme way of eating which you know is not going to lead you to where you want to be ultimately the um, so one really is driven by performance mm. and one is really driven by health, but the, the, they dovetail together so, so incredibly closely. I get it. So give me an example that you are, say one is participating in a triathlon. Yep. So how do we uh, fuel our bodies okay. whilst we are preparing um, for this? Okay. Um, so a a good example of how this might work would be, uh, I, have, I had a client last year who was doing the outlaw um, half Ironman. So a very long distance triathlon um, basically would take him, I can't remember, I think he did it in about six hours. Um, so it's a, it's a long event. And for him, the preparation in terms of the food that he needed to eat was, was largely driven by um, carbohydrates. So often not a popular word in the world of, of nutrition, but in terms of um, performance, uh, specifically in terms of endurance, the body likes to run on carbohydrates and we store a certain amount of those carbohydrates in our muscles and in our liver. And that's what's known as glycogen. And this glycogen is the way, the way to think about glycogen is it's, it's what's available in, in the fridge. OK, so if you want to eat something and you go to the fridge, it's available. You can take it straight out and you can eat it immediately. Um, in terms of 
our longer term storage, it's easier to think of that body fat as what's in the freezer. You can access that energy or that body fat, but it will take a little bit of time for it to defrost and be accessible. And if we take a step back in terms of performance, if you are running your marathon, doing your triathlon, you want to have as much energy that is available from the fridge that can be accessed immediately, because when that happens, your pace, your sporting performance will be higher, will be better. If you have to access more from the freezer, and in this case, that means body fat, in terms of weight loss, you might think that's advantageous, but for performance, this can be quite dis uh, di uh, quite unhelpful. And the reason being is that when you have to defrost that energy or release it from the fat cells, it's very efficient at doing it and you'll have plenty of, of energy available. Most people have enough energy to run a marathon just off of what's in their body stores. but um, you have to allow more oxygen uh, to basically break that fat down. And if you're allowing more oxygen to go into breaking that fat down, what that means is that your running pace, your swimming pace or your cycling pace has to slow to enable that to happen. Because what you ideally want is enough ready, readily available energy from glycogen, from carbohydrates to fuel your performance and to fuel that pace. If you now need to take some from body fat, you then have to slow down. Less less oxygen is then available to your working muscles, which in this case typically is the legs um, or uh, the core or the arms, etc. Um, so we want to make sure that somebody like John, who was going into his half Ironman, we want to make sure he's having adequate amounts of carbohydrate in the three to four days prior to his event to top up those stores. We want to make sure he's having the right food and fuel on the morning of the event to make sure everything is topped up as much as possible. We want to make sure he's got adequate vitamins to make sure he's not getting ill in the week before an event, because that can be quite common as an athlete comes off of a period of really high training. Um, and then all of a sudden their training cuts back as they kind of rest before an event and all of a sudden they get ill. So nutrient intake has to be really good by the day, lots of fruit and veg. And then in terms of the event itself, we're looking to make sure we're putting as much of that fast release carbohydrate in as possible. And that would be the classic things that you might see people at the marathon, particularly London Marathon being this weekend, um, would be things like uh, energy gels, um, energy bars, sports drinks, which have uh, both electrolytes for salt loss and carbohydrates for energy. And so that then the combination of these things means that you're fueled as well as possible to get the best uh, performance out of, of, of your main event, uh, so to speak. So there's a there's a big component in terms of something like a marathon. You shouldn't hit the, the return is hitting the wall. And if you get your nutrition right, you shouldn't hit the wall. As long as you've done the run training, if you haven't done the run training, then it's a different problem. But if you've done the run training, but you don't get your nutrition right, you're leaving way too much on the course and it, it shouldn't be problem and it's something I spend a lot of time kind of drilling into my athletes and into my clients that are doing these type of events um, and when they come back with great performances uh, it is a lot of that down to getting that nutrition right practicing and training uh, and finding the, the products that, that that sit well and work for them mm, interesting so for someone see I go to the gym about three times a week and I am not taking part in any um, sports activities mm -hmm. as such. However, there is increased amount of uh, weight training, resistance yep. training. Um, so for, for someone like me or for someone who has a reasonable active yep. lifestyle, 
what is so two two parts uh, to this question one is that would you recommend energy bars and protein shakes and energy drinks to them one and so so yeah the first the first question is that then these protein shakes which have always seemed a bit dicey to me only because they have such a high mm-hmm. sugar content so now i understand that they are better suited for for athletes and for uh, for for sports trainers and performance trainers rather than regular mm-hmm. gym goers is that correct in general yes you're absolutely correct everything whenever we talk about using a supplement there has to be a very clear rationale for it um it shouldn't just be a case of taking taking the supplement because of the marketing and this is where it gets very difficult for people because there is very limited research goes into a lot of these different supplements so particularly something like whey protein it has it has actually had more studies done than most but even so a lot of those studies get funded by manufacturers of these products and they cherry pick um they cherry pick the uh, yeah so, cool. uh, so it makes it difficult to to kind of be confident in, in how effective it's going to be that aside um it really depends on on what your goals are and really depends on how often you're training now, in terms of uh, the general public if they're training two or three times per week if they're doing less than an hour in each of those sessions you're really not going to need anything if you're getting a good healthy balanced diet you'd be much better saving your money on supplements and investing in getting good quality sources of fruit and veg even if they're frozen which is a great cheaper alternative to to make sure you're getting those in your diet uh you'd be good to make sure you're getting healthy source of oily fish so your omega 3s and things like salmon um in things like uh, olive oils nuts and seeds you would be better to invest your money in those things to complement what you're doing in the gym rather than spending money on supplements now if you're in the gym probably three or more times per week and your training is is kind of bordering more on the serious side depending on what your goals are then there can sometimes be a, a reason to to use these types of supplements um in most cases the only one i generally recommend is a whey protein shake and you are quite right about the sugars in within them although most of these tend to be um they tend to be sweeteners rather than pure sugars and the the studies into the sweetness side of things are looking more encouraging that they are less harmful what i would counter that mm-hmm. with is is it becomes a more of a personal decision at this point because while i would accept from the studies that i've read um the sweetness side of things does, doesn't doesn't appear to be causing any ill health and i'm sure it doesn't i would still personally rather steer clear of of sweetness as much as possible that is a personal decision for me um as i'm sure most of your listeners will make as well the only reason that something like a whey protein shake can be helpful is just because we are so busy and if you are trying to increase your protein to increase your muscle mass to recover faster to maybe um help you reduce hunger um uh, even if you're someone who's relatively sedentary maybe you have a, a desk job or you work from home whey protein can just make life a little bit easier because it can just be mixed with water uh it can be mixed with other other foods and in this situation it is a compromise um and that really is what it is it's basically a equivalent of blended chicken breast it's not literally what it is but it's the equivalent um so uh, if you're not happy with whey protein because obviously the whey comes from lactose then there are lots of alternatives and vegan alternatives out there as well um 
whey protein is the only one I'm really comfortable with. Uh, lots of the others, most of them, you're, mm. most of them come under pseudoscience or very loose claims. But most people, they don't need them. In all honesty, focus on your diet. You'll get much better results if you focus on your diet and then come back to supplements. Then there might be a different kind of reasoning as to why it would be applicable. But it's quite a personal kind of thing. You very briefly touched upon sweeteners and mm. sugars and. That is something that I'm most interested in because really, tell us about the do's and don'ts of sugar. Is it really slow poison? Does it really feed cancer cells? Does it really make um, the body acidic, which then makes it breeding ground for yeah. cancer so cells? So this is, this is one of the biggest issues I, I get asked about. It's one of the biggest issues that you will see online. And... The understanding that most people have around sugar, unfortunately, is is not very good. And so I, I kind of kind of guess this question might come up. So I kind of pre-prepared a few thoughts that I want to share to give people a, a kind of broader overview on this rather than picking on any one study uh, as being right or wrong. Now, a lot of people have a, a misunderstanding or a poor understanding of what sugar actually is. Now. Sugar is a very, very simple form of carbohydrate. So we have more complex carbohydrates, which will take a little bit longer to digest. That would be things like brown rice. It would be things like whole wheat pasta. Uh, it would be things like porridge. We also have fibrous carbohydrates, which is going to be things like your vegetables. And then we have very simple forms of carbohydrate or added sugars, which are the types of things you're going to find in fizzy drinks, cakes, chocolate. We kind of, most people have a reasonable understanding of what they are, although most people aren't quite aware of all the different places that it tends to hide in their diet. Now, any carbohydrate that you eat, regardless of whether it is complex or simple or fibrous or wherever it comes from, all of those carbohydrates will eventually get broken down into glucose in the bloodstream. And glucose is basically the body's energy currency. And the brain itself is what's known as an obligate glucose user. And it has, I think it's around 30 grams, 30 or 40 grams per day requirement for that glucose. And when we talk about blood sugar levels, we're really talking about blood glucose levels. And so it's very, very important, not just for our energy, but for how the body functions. And when people talk about going on a no sugar diet or cutting out carbs or cutting out sugar altogether, um, there is quite a misunderstanding for a lot of people as to what that actually means. It really technically, if you want to be really fussy about it, it's quite impossible to cut out sugar from your diet unless you have zero carbohydrates um, because they are in essence the same thing. Now, that being said, it was much better to focus the attention on what type of sugars they are. And actually, if it is the added sugars, the, the rough refined sugars that you would find in cakes and chocolate and fizzy drinks, those really are the ones that we definitely do need to cut down. And the reason for this is because they've been refined, which means they've been basically kind of, I guess the easiest way to explain it would be shrunk down to the smallest component. So you can have very high volume of sugar um, in a can of Coke, for example. So in that in that small, relatively small volume of, of, of liquid, you can have a, a huge amount of sugar. Um, and that then causes problems for gaining weight because the volume of sugar is so high. It means that the calories are high at the same time. Now, this is where the misconception comes from that sugar causes um, uh, diabetes and that it isn't actually true. 
Um, it is part of the equation completely because if you have if your diet is poor and it's high in foods that have lots of refined sugars, the calories will be higher as a consequence. And that then can be a contributing factor to becoming overweight and then obese. If you are obese, then by just the very act of being obese can in turn uh, lead to your uh, basically your pancreas not recognizing or your uh, the, the fat cells basically blocking the signal when insulin is reduced, re released from the pancreas. And in turn, it means that rather than uh, what happens is that basically you have, let's say you have a can of Coke, okay? It digests really quickly. Sugar goes into the bloodstream pretty fast because there's very little digestion to, to happen. That, blood, that sugar is now in the bloodstream. It can't stay in the bloodstream because if it stays there too long, it becomes uh, toxic, it becomes dangerous. And so the body's job is to release insulin. It releases the insulin. The insulin basically will then remove the glucose from the blood and it will make the glucose go off and do one of three things. It will either use it for its immediate energy requirements. So if you're walking around, then it's going to use it for that. It will store it as glycogen, which we talked about earlier. So it's store it in the liver, in the muscles as basically what's in the fridge, easily available. And then if there is any excess, it will then store it as body fat uh, for long term storage. So it pops it in the freezer for later. Um, and so that's basically what it will do. However, when you are obese, uh, the signal that um, when the insulin is released from the pancreas gets blocked. And so you end up with insulin in the blood, but not all of the glucose gets removed. It becomes less sensitive to the impact of the insulin. And in this sense, you then have the issue where the sugar has contributed to your obesity, but not has not directly caused it. And you're now in a situation where if you're obese, you're more likely to be having a diet that is higher in sugar anyway, which now means the volume of sugar or glucose is now very high in the blood and you're struggling to handle it. And that is when you then get the onset of, of type 2 diabetes, um, which then means you need medication and to, to, to address your diet and can potentially be a very, very serious condition. Um, I'm going to come to your question on, on the cancer side of things. But I just would like to get your feedback. Is that is that if I explained that well, is that is that make sense? Totally. You've just kind of lifted a veil, to say the least. Excellent. Good. <laughs> so there's the, there's that side of sugar that's maybe not very well understood or properly understood by people, and then we come to the the cancer side of things. And what happens in the uh, in the medical and in the in the scientific community? is basically they have a series of, of ways of testing and doing research. Uh, and this is basically what we then we will base all our recommendations on as practitioners. And the tricky bit here, and I'm going to kind of talk you through how this process works, is you, you will start, our, start out with usually anecdotal studies. So it can be based on anecdotes or it can be based on, on tradition or ways that different, different types of people eat um, or do certain things. Once there's enough backing from this, you'll then quite often move to observational studies. But the problem with the observational studies on things is that uh, they can make links between things that can be very vague or can not necessarily be the cause. In the same way as we talked about um, sugar causing diabetes. Well, yes, we, we can we can demonstrate that they're heavily linked. But at the same time, we can't say um, as an observation that sugar, therefore, is the cause of, 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 of type 2 diabetes, although it is heavily linked together. Now, 
these are still required because the observational studies then enable there to get interest and funding and backers to then do more serious, more serious research. That then will often lead to what we call in, uh, in vitro trials which is where they will start doing some uh, lab-based testing on microorganisms or test tube-based uh, testing, uh, which starts to lift the lid on what potentially is going on. If, if the results from this can be positive or, or, or kind of gain enough interest for funding, you would then typically move on to something like animal trials. Um, but there are a few issues even with this because, for example, say they're doing a test on a, on a rat uh, for, for the impacts of, of, of sugar causing cancer. They might well choose or they will typically choose a rat that uh, either has a genetic uh, strain or they basically might have genetically altered it. Um, so it is more susceptible to getting cancer because they need they need to have a, 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 an individual or in this case, a rat that will, will develop cancer so they can then check all of the variables of what they're looking for. Problem with this, is they are quite heavily manipulating that environment so it doesn't always give you the clearest and fairest kind of picture um, but that being said very important part of how we, we we improve our understanding depending on how that goes we'll quite often move on to human trials depending on what it is and then over a period of time you'll end up with uh, uh, systemic reviews which are broad uh, critical appraisals of research studies and the one that I think most people listening to this may have heard of is the WHO study which was out last year and recently had another update which looked at the impact of processed food on cancer and uh, the links between red meat and cancer um, and that basically lots of different mm -hmm. studies and feedback. Now the reason I've kind of gone through that is because to go full circle and come back to the issue with sugar and cancer is there is so much information on the internet that is not based on uh, based on enough information that we can actually make that positive link right now. Now, do I think it is likely to be connected? And this is just purely my opinion. I would not be surprised. I, I would not be surprised if there was a link, but I would expect that link probably be to probably to be more similar in the way that sugar is contributing to the fact that you gain weight and develop type two diabetes rather than perhaps being the absolute individual thing. Um, and I would put it more down to the volume of which we are able to put sugar into the body because it is refined and because we have found a way as, as, as a, you know, a developed, uh, a developed species to manufacture that sugar. Whereas the sugar that you find naturally occurring in life, because I said already, carbohydrates and sugar is just part of your diet and what we eat. In those situations, I don't see it as being, being the ultimate evil. Um, and so a lot of the things that you'll see online when they are, referencing a study or they're talking about something um, there isn't yet enough enough research available to make that absolute 100 percent link and what i would say is there are now unfortunately a lot of um, netflix uh, nutrition coaches and people that get a lot of their information from documentaries on netflix and some of them can be very informative but the way that they demonstrate a lot of their knowledge and their information from it is quite misleading to people that are watching those documentaries they will flash up a screenshot of a study it will be highlighted in in yellow but it will be a, a full page you can't read it you can catch the first line and then it's gone and it's designed to build mm -hmm. credibility for, mm -hmm. for their argument um but it's not done in a way that actually really lets people do what is ultimately the most important thing in terms of your diet and that's critical thinking and it's looking at a diet a situation and comparing it to your lifestyle saying right 
here's the information, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. How do I feel about this and what am I happy to move forward with? As a coach, that's really what my job is to help people with their critical thinking skills, give them enough education so that they can make the decision that's right for them. And when people get frustrated that the um, the science changes and it's always confusing as to what they should do, um, there's two things to this. We want the science to be changing because it means we're understanding and developing our, our knowledge, which is a good thing. Um, what we need less of is the media jumping on these smaller um, observational studies or in vitro trials and claiming that it is the big bold solution or answer that we've been looking for because that is what's confusing people and not enabling them to have that critical eye. Um, quite a long explanation but I hope I've gone way around it gives you a good overview of my No, no, no. I'm totally with you and I'm just thinking because yes, a lot of times, not just in this industry, in the fitness industry, a lot, in other, even otherwise, everything is kind of taken mm -hmm. out of context. And as you're saying, you just take those two lines and you kind of digest it and that holds, that's yeah. like the holy grail. Yeah. So um, basically take everything yeah. with a pinch of sugar. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that pinch of sugar on its own is not going to kill you. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I mean, it's, it's, you're right. It's, it's uh, certain things are, are, uh, it's part of that, that grand mm -hmm. design and that grand mm -hmm. diet, which does include sugars, but as long mm -hmm. as they're natural sugars, right? We know that processed sugar is mm -hmm. not going to be good for us. However, we have to, uh, make intelligent decisions mm -hmm. as you're mm -hmm. seeing. And, and that, that really is it. It's, it's just, it's trying to be as informed as possible. And, and the, 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 the disappointing, the frustrating thing for people is that those that are really keen to know and learn get misled by information that is there for clickbait for marketing for all of these different reasons and that is is the is the danger is that is the challenge we have of where um our kind of globalist and um uh capitalist uh, society uh overlaps in a way that is not always helpful for just understanding what you need to do um, and it's, it's a challenge because, you know, people want to make money in the industry. I love helping people, but I run a business and I'm very upfront about that. Um, you know, I, I love helping people and working with them, but I am running a business. So, you know, I need to get paid for that. And, and I'm not ashamed of that as well. I think a lot of people worry about that side of things. But if you take that up the scale in terms of companies that are maybe a little bit less ethical or a little bit less worried about how accurate their information is, you get into a situation where people that just want the right answer are struggling. And that's really disappointing and uh, it's really frustrating mm. for like me and I'm sure like mm. yourself that would just love to help people get to a healthier and happier place. True. That's basically it. Uh, just coming to my last question, and I'm sure you're, you've been posed with this question many times and it's again all over, um, all over the place these days, is um, intermittent mm. fasting versus a keto okay. diet. Um, if it's a personal preference, I'm just going to go purely on personal. I prefer intermittent fasting um, and I will use I, but I use a modified version. If we're talking intermittent fasting in terms of maybe the five two, where it's maybe five or six hundred calories per day. I'm not a fan of this approach at all. Um, reason being that it encourages you to eat far below your basal metabolic rate or the minimum number of calories that you would need to function within a day. Um, and that's not healthy if you do that on an ongoing basis. It also, in my opinion, from people that have followed this for some time, can encourage disorderly eating 
or it can be a way for people that are struggling with their relationship with food to outwardly appear like they are on an approach that is looking after their health when in fact it's just playing into a mindset that is potentially spiraling into a very unhealthy place and uh, that's not everyone i'm not making a sweeping statement there that's just my experience of, of, of some of the people that i have worked with with this approach that being said i do use uh, an intermittent fasting approach both myself and with my clients from time to time typically those that are more active um, but the way that i do this is uh, say, for example, you needed to you wanted to lose some weight and we worked out what your calorie intake should be. And it was sixteen hundred calories a day. Now, the challenge of a regular diet is that if you take that sixteen hundred calories and you split it between breakfast, maybe a mid morning snack, lunch, maybe a mid afternoon snack, maybe your evening meal and maybe a dessert, that that number of calories really doesn't go very far at all. However, if you use an intermittent fasting mm -hmm. approach, um, so you fast through the evening uh, overnight um, and then through the morning, typically breaking the fast around 12 to two o'clock, depending on what's applicable for you and what's the best approach. You then split the same 1600 calories, the same calorie deficit over that now smaller feed window, which means that your day will typically look like normally a larger meal for meal one, maybe a late afternoon snack, meal number two being dinner possibly a snack afterwards, and then you're back into your fast. So those 1600 calories are now split over a smaller feed window. The big benefit that this has is that you are having the right amount of calories to help you lose weight and to get the nutrients into your diet. Uh, it means that you feel much fuller in those meals where you're eating. Uh, and it also means you don't feel like you're on a diet, which for a lot of people is really, really helpful. This works nicely for people that don't like breakfast because a lot of people don't and it isn't essential to have breakfast it is important that the first meal of the day is of good quality because that sets up your eating habits for the remainder of that feed window whether that is you know from breakfast time through to the evening or it's from lunch time through to the evening um, but it doesn't have to be at breakfast time you could technically have your day's calories within a single hour and the body wouldn't care it just has a certain requirement per day now that might not work for you in terms of how you feel through the day, but that's a different that's a different kind of situation. As far as the body's concerned, it would have what it needed. A lot of the intermittent fasting approaches, five two, are much similar to twenty four hour fasts, and the problem with these is usually that it, it can lead to uh, overcorrection, so kind of more binge type eating. So you're trying to put in a lot of calories, or you're trying to put your calories in, but you can tend to overeat because you've not eaten all day. Um, or you have those days where you're not fasting and you just you eat rubbish because you think, well, I've not eaten for two days or I've been fasting for two days. Uh, and really, the big issue is you just struggle to get in enough nutrients. Um, so that's how I tackle intermittent fasting. In terms of ketogenic diet, I'm not a big fan of ketogenic diet for quite a few reasons. I'm not convinced by the research studies that I've seen. Um, it absolutely should not be done by somebody who is. Uh, diabetic uh, that should only be done under medical supervision and quite often that can be the case for intermittent fasting as well. Uh, it also depending on the approach that you're following will have you on a very 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 low intake of carbohydrates usually 30 to 50 grams per day as part of the nature of ketogenic diet and again this is just really to give your brain what it needs to function. It leads to very very rapid muscle loss so if you are going to follow this approach, it's vitally important that you get your protein intake uh, adequate because you have to have a certain amount of protein intake to sustain your muscle mass. 
And so if you think you're losing lots of weight, you're basically primarily breaking down muscle because the body kind of cannibalizes itself. So if you look at it this way, your body has a set number of calories that it needs in a day. But some of those calories go into sustaining the muscles that you have because they require some of those calories. If you've now massively reduced the calories going in and the sources from protein and things like that, the body will start to break itself down to bring its calorie requirement down. And so that can lead to um, very rapid loss of muscle mass. Um, and a combination of that, a combination of um, stored energy, the glycogen, the carbohydrate that's stored in the, in the muscles, that gets broken down very quickly. Um, so you lose all of that uh, kind of glycogen, muscle mass, and then retained water because carbohydrates encourage you to retain water because every gram of carbohydrate you have in your in your system requires four, molecule, four molecules of water to hold it there. And on the scales, this looks super dramatic because you're like, wow, I've dropped like 10 pounds in a week. This is amazing. But in reality, it's not body fat. And we need this clear distinction between weight and body fat when we're looking to reduce body fat. The other issue is to be in a ketogenic state, you need to you need to urinate on a on a strip to let you know if you're if you've gone ketogenic. Now, for me, that's a step too far um, because I, I would enjoy life, not 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 know if I need it's time to go and pee on my stick to see if I've gone keto. Um, and it's really hard to sustain. So for a lot of people, it will um, it will be really hard to sustain for any length of time. That being said. I do know some people that have had very good results and it fits their lifestyle, but I have not met anyone that has sustained it for a very long period of time or something they feel they could do permanently. Uh, if it can't be done, if it's not something that people feel they can do as an ongoing thing, it's not something I feel is sustainable and fits the model that I like to coach people on. Um, but interestingly, a client I am working with has been using a ketogenic approach prior to working with me, and she's found that it's reduced pretty much all of her symptoms of inflammation, and she's tried all sorts of uh, diets and restrictions before and ketogenic diet has worked for her now she is keen to keep that as part of her routine as a coach i'm very interested to kind of explore what it is around that that's that's got rid of the inflammation and actually see if we can't pinpoint what it is because i'm fairly certain it's not the ketogenic approach but something within what she's been doing um has actually helped her reduce her her near constant pain and muscle ache so um Yes, those are kind of my my kind of thoughts. Fantastic, fantastic. Andy, I can't tell you how informative this has been. And I am certain that uh, once I listen to this again, me and the listeners would have loads of questions and I would love to have you um, on this uh, I'd, podcast I'd love to again. come back. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Excellent. Thank so you just so a, much. Just a quick question for yourself. Obviously, we've covered some interesting topics there, and they're quite um, they're quite uh, emotive. Just interested to get your your thoughts on on maybe the ketogenic and the intermittent fasting. What are your your opinions on those two particular approaches in terms of have you tried either of them? Do you have a preference? Do you do you favour one over the other, or or do you find that both of them don't quite fit a more balanced approach? Your personal personal opinion, because it's all about what works for the individual. Yeah. So, see, um, as part of our religion, we are we are supposed to fast um, every mm-hmm. one month every year yeah. for thirty days, and um, generally, so that's how the body works. And the metabolism after about three days um, of fasting, the metabolism quickens. 
um, one is sleeping better, you're still more active. However, you're, you're fasting for, say, mm-hmm. 12, 13 hours or 14 and like 19 hours here in London. Um, and I've felt, always felt that whilst I'm fasting, I'm more active. My mm-hmm. brain is working better. Um, I'm sleeping better. So fasting mm-hmm. has always worked for me. Um, when you talk about the keto diet, which is very similar to Atkins, long ago, I, I, I tried it. One, as you said, it wasn't sustainable. Two, I never lost any weight. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. I gained weight after I stopped. So it was something that just didn't mm. work. That's for really me interesting. All. And obviously, as someone that's, 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 that's fasted for, for multiple years in, in kind of a very structured way, that's really, really interesting. And it's not an uncommon it's not an uncommon feedback that I get from people. And it's one of the reasons why I like that approach is because it's so flexible in terms of the way I use it. You Normally, it's not a case of saying you must do this this many days a week. Normally, I just say to clients, right, sit down at the end of the week. What's coming up in the next seven days? If you've got a meeting, that means that you're going to have pastries and things available. Let's let's have that as the fasting day because then you haven't got to make a, a difficult decision. You know, if you're on the road and you're in a petrol station you, where you know you can't buy healthy food, um, uh, you know, that's a great day to fast because then you haven't got to decide. Um, you haven't got to make that impossible decision. And the thing that nearly always comes back in those situations is that uh, the more people do it, the better they feel and the easier it is to do it. Um, so I'm really intrigued by that. That's really been really interesting. So, I mean, if, if you were to tie in everything, it's really, as you said, one, whether it's your fitness goals or it's weight loss or it's what you're ingesting, it's always about yeah. informed decisions. It's always about intelligent decisions. And then knowing that mm-hmm. what works for you might not work for the other person. So you have to kind yeah. of, it's a trial yeah, and everything. Completely. And you, I think if people became more comfortable with that, they would progress much faster. and. It's finding what fits your lifestyle, what makes you feel good, and exactly that being as informed as you can and being critical about what you're reading and hearing. And I that's I don't say to people this is the one way to do it. It is a case of saying, right, what is going to fit this individual? And it's also people shouldn't be afraid to change it as your lifestyle changes. So, for example, if you move house, if you change job, these can be key points in your life where your lifestyle will completely change. And now actually that might mean that the approach you've been using for the last few years needs to adapt. And it's not always helpful to look back fondly on when we did Slimming World or when we did Atkins or when we did the amazing gym routine, um, you know, and actually just say, well, that worked at that part point in my life for various reasons. What's going to fit now and make me feel good? And sometimes that means doing less. That might mean exercising less. It might mean eating a bit more and not losing as much weight as quickly but once you fit it around your lifestyle it doesn't feel like an external part and that makes it easier to stick to and ultimately puts less pressure on you and you feel happier so true so true wow thank you so much <laughs> a wealth of information pleasure, thank you so pleasure. so much thank you, you very take much. care Bye-bye. then thank you bye Dear listeners, thank you for listening. All suggestions, ratings and comments would be most welcome. See you next time. Bye.